This episode of the podcast was recorded on the 20th of May 2021 at home in Wicklow. I don't want to say it's a heavy episode because that won't sound appealing, but it is certainly a discussion of a serious subject. I go into parenting and the legacy of damaging parenting and how that legacy can shape us and affect us throughout our adult lives unless we find a way of dealing with it. I also, on a lighter note, talk about licking. That's right, licking with a tongue that is covered in saliva. And funnily, as I re-listened to the episode, I realised I'd completely forgotten that several years ago, prior to moving to Australia, I used to play a regular uh, Tuesday night soccer game on AstroTurf, a small AstroTurf pitch in Wicklow. And I used to admonish my teammates if I felt their focus had dropped off, especially if we'd just suffered a counter-attacking goal. And I used to roar at them, stop licking yourselves, which uh, (laughs) I equated with sort of self-congratulation and complacency. So yeah, stop licking yourselves, lads. Wake up, come on, get back in the game. Anyway, that is what you have to look forward to. And I also use a discussion of the man-cold, the phenomenon, the man-cold, as a launching pad for a bit of a bit of a deep dive into male pain ow ow that's male pain right there ow there it is again okay enjoy the episode thanks for listening cheers not gonna change my mind hi i'm Dara clear and you're listening to the clear out how are you how's it going welcome back And thanks. Thanks for lending me your ears. I'll give them back, I promise. You'll still have your ears at the end of all of this. And you can carry on with your life. Listening to the things you want to listen to. And not listening to the things you don't want to listen to. A little bit of selective hearing there. Now, speaking of hearing, you might be able to hear a different note in my voice today. That note or that tone, let's say, is probably a better a better word to use here. That tone is the tone of a cold. I know. Poor old me. I've got a cold. Ah, is it a man cold? Might be. Might just be one of those man colds that are so unbelievably debilitating. And also so unbelievably ridiculed. But there you go. It's one of them. And I have it because my daughter, bless her cotton socks, infected me with her cold that she came down with a few days ago. So thanks for that. Thanks, daughter. My daughter has an unfortunate habit (laughs) of... (laughs) <laughs> you know, of you know, wanting to spread her saliva in the most generous way possible amongst the family. I feel she does it less to my wife, but I could very easily just be sitting there on the couch, maybe reading something, a book, perusing my phone, staring into space, and I'll suddenly be aware of this icky, wet sensation on the side of my arm. And lo and behold, my daughter, who is seven and a half, will be there surreptitiously giving my arm an old lick just for the hell of it. Just because she knows it drives me mad. I'm like, get the hell off my arm. Stop bloody licking me. Get away from me before I kill you. And she runs away squealing with delight. You know, this is one, only one 
of you know several weapons in her arsenal that she likes to deploy all with the same goal of distracting me making me crack I, I did refer to some of this behavior in a in a previous episode um but yeah all that kind of physical messing and horseplay uh, in my daughter is channeled in my direction she doesn't really do it with uh, with her mother and i have to be honest there's a part of me that loves it <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose she recognizes that, and that's why uh, there's no let up. Um, she'll frequently just punch me out of the blue. Um, just a random dig in the arm, the leg. Um, recently it's been you know a punch, a punch to the stomach. Um, she's very fond of that one, and she's got a she's got a powerful little punch on her. And I suppose I have to hold myself a little bit responsible because. I've done nothing to discourage this. You know, let's be clear. Let's be clear. I have often said, stop hitting me. And there's a time and a place and, you know, choose your moment. But as long as she feels, you know, I am not going to truly explode and crush her. (laughs) I think she just feels I'm fair game. And it's... It's part of our dialogue, uh, part of our dynamic and clearly part of how she chooses to express herself with me and express her sense of humor and her her mischief. And as I said, I do. There's a part of me that really does enjoy it. And then there is a part of me at the wrong time that it makes me furious. But she doesn't do it to my wife. So that's good. And I've no reason to think she's doing it to anybody else. I imagine... I imagine uh, one of my brothers, her uncles, they they get something similar, so she recognizes there's a there's a something available there into which she can pour her um, her desire <laughs> her desire to to mix it up and get stuck in. But anyway, all of this is you know a, a way of saying it's because of her I have this cold, and yeah. Can't stand it. Drives me mad. I don't like being sick. Um, she gave me a cold at Easter as well, and and this is so. This is twice in recent history where I've succumbed to her germs, uh, her generous germs. I have. I find myself wondering. I mean, not. I'm not a, not in a kind of a hippy dippy way, but you know, I often think, you know, when we're stressed or, you know, enduring. A period of anxiety that those are the times when we're more vulnerable to, to, to getting sick. I've no idea if there's any scientific merit in that thought, but I'm convinced that that's true. You know, when we're when we're at a sort of a low ebb, you know, emotionally, psychologically, we're vulnerable. You know, we, we leave ourselves unprotected. You know, as our as we apportion a dis you know a disproportionate amount of mental energy to other things um it leaves us open to attack yeah so perhaps perhaps that's what's going on i have been feeling anxious lately definitely unquestionably um i don't enjoy it it's not really part of my normal mode of thinking like my normal mode of behavior but you know these things are inevitable i feel you know we all we all endure periods like this and certainly over the last year and a half almost now with the pandemic um i think we're we're all more and more susceptible there's a a gradual erosion of our otherwise normally robust um baseline i guess let's put it that way um a certain yeah robust resistance that in normal times is more available to us. I think over this prolonged period of stress that has, you know, afflicted the whole world, um, that, that everyday resilience, that barrier between us and outside stresses, I think that barrier has been getting thinner and thinner, more, uh, vulnerable to, uh, rupture. Um, and I'm attributing that to having a cold for the second time in, 
you know, six or seven weeks. So there you go. Now, I did have a thought on this whole idea of putting up with bad behavior in those who are close to us. So for the sake of starting this uh, this argument or this um, hypothesis, I'm looking at my daughter and I'm thinking, okay, so I'm tolerating this bad behavior. Yeah, I'm tolerating this bad behavior. Now, as a parent, I suppose you think you tolerate this kind of stuff from your kids because you think, look, there's a huge, huge um, range for, for growth, huge potential for growth and development and maturation. And after all, she's only a kid and who cares? It'll be grand. It'll be fine. Uh, I'll choose my moment to speak to her, talk about behavior I don't like. No problem. Yeah. And hopefully that's decent communication, decent, um, you know, decent or effective parenting. And it leads to, you know, better understanding and ultimately better behavior. Yeah. Um, so that's fine. That's fine. And that's, you know, from my side as the, the recipient of the bad behavior. Now, that's, I think, an indication of functionality, of something functional in the relationship. My daughter, who I love, does something to me. I don't like it. I disapprove of it. Or she does something to, you know, my wife. And we disapprove of that. But you communicate. And you communicate in a way that's hopefully constructive and considerate and not simply an expression of anger or judgment or, you know, whatever. Um, and there's trust. There's trust on the part of myself and the part of my wife that our daughter is reachable. <laughs> that, you know, the message we're delivering will land in the right spot. And as she is, as I said earlier, only seven and a half, we'll try not to overload it or overload or overcomplicate the the message. Give her sufficiently um, sufficiently clear information that she understands what we're talking about, but don't make it so complex or adulty that she just switches off and, you know, she just hears the blah, blah, blah voice in her head Well. Her imagination steers itself towards more interesting things, unicorns and soft toys and, you know, what cartoon she's going to watch next and when the next opportunity to lick me is going to present itself. Yes. So, so that's fine. That's, you know, I think communication, central, 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 central to healthy relationships. No, you know, in every walk of life. And I consider myself and my wife extremely lucky in that our daughter is a great communicator she's a great communicator she's yeah I don't know I suppose it's um you know it's her natural inclination and it's there's a level of confidence that she can <laughs> that she that she'll be given a platform to communicate and um, she'll take that platform if it's not given anyway and you know one thing I've been thinking about um, is my daughter, if I'm angry with my daughter, she's very good at saying to me, um, you know, she'll get upset quickly. If, if I'm angry with her and she feels it's not fair, she is very quick to say to me, you know, and often in a, you know, in a state of being a bit upset or distressed herself, you know, you're speaking to me in an angry voice. I don't like it. I don't like you speaking to me in that voice. And it's incredibly effective. You know, to, to me, like I, I hear it and I'm, I catch myself and I go, like sometimes, sometimes I'll say I am speaking in an angry voice because I'm angry because you just did this or you just did that. But often I'll have to go, do you know what? You're right. And I'm sorry. I don't mean to speak to you in this voice. I'm stressed about something or I'm worried about something. You don't need to worry about that. Um, you know, I'm sorry for speaking to you that way. I, you know, I shouldn't have. And you know, I was thinking about this and thinking that it's great as long as long as my daughter still feels she can say that to me, 
you know, it's, it's, it's an indication of the health of the relationship um, that she feels she can trust that it's safe for her to say that to me. And she can trust that she there's a very strong chance she'll get a positive result from saying that to me. And, you know, bear in mind, I am looking at it clearly and I'm, you know, I'm identifying what she's saying as a genuine articulation of how she's feeling. It's She's not trying to manipulate me. It's not just something she's going to throw out as a little Pavlovian cue to make me, you know, step back and apologize and grovel at her feet, um, you know, because I feel so guilty as, you know, as a, as a, as a failing parent. I failed again. I'm a terrible father. I'm so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? It's not about that at all. No, I think it's an indication of health. It's an indication that there's good communication happening. And, you know, I, I, I check myself. And I have to go, okay, how how much longer am I willing to indulge that behavior, not in my daughter, but in myself? And how much longer is she going to give me a pass? Because every time she's willing to say, you're speaking to me that way and I don't like it, that means there's still a chance for dialogue. There's still a chance for negotiation. There's still a chance for recovery. And... You know, I can't help but think if the time comes where she feels I'm not saying that to him anymore and internalizes the sense of hurt or the sense of indignation or injustice, then I am in big trouble. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that gives me pause for thought because I try to look at how I parent and look at the less savory aspects of my parenting and how I, you know, the areas where I don't have as much control as I would like and how that might or how it does negatively impact my daughter. Um, and I try to, I really try to kind of look at that and think not just about, you know, the impact now, but really the impact uh, on her in the future. Because, you know, I, I sometimes get this fear on me where you think like, you know, some of these exchanges we have or, you know, some of the blow ups or arguments or, you know, emotional outbursts, you think, right, is that is that a memory now? Is that a memory that gets stored and it's going to be dredged up later when she's an adult or it's going to you know affect how she relates to other people or what she takes into her romantic relationships or how, you know, how she speaks to, you know, to, to others. And I don't want to be a contributor to <laughs> to to childhood trauma. <laughs> I mean, that's the bottom line, isn't it? Really, like that, you know. And in you know, trauma has a scale, but I think we all bear certain kind of scars and marks from our from our childhoods that we you know that we take into adulthood, um, and. You know, that stuff can be very, um, very formative and very kind of shaping and can have, you know, undue. No, I don't want to say undue because, I mean, it's really real stuff. I think it's really relevant, but it can have sort of a, a disproportionate um, impact on how we conduct ourselves as adults. And certainly, of course, how we think of ourselves as adults and how that adult identity emerges and goes out into the world but to take it back to these behavioral interactions so if we look at my daughter and go let's just take the licking <laughs> take the the licking in isolation um or you know the random hitting that she likes to uh, in, inflict on me and then on my side, if we take me getting angry or using an angry voice, a loud voice, occasionally shouting, um, that's my bad behavior. Uh, that's how I say it. I mean, I'm, I'm putting my hand up to that. Um, if we look at those behaviors and then ask, why is it that in all likelihood I will continue to get angry, I will continue to use that angry voice. I will continue to use a loud voice. My daughter will, in most, uh, you know, 
will most likely continue this assault of licking and punching. Why are these behaviours not that likely to change? And I think the answer is simple. And, you know, I'm going to extrapolate on this uh, and apply it to other relationships. But the answer is because she looks at me and I look at her and we both think you'll be back tomorrow. You'll be here again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that and so on. And this is how we view the people who are closest to us in our lives, particularly and especially our family members, our our partners, our, our loved ones, the people who we spend, you know, so much, you know, physical time with, um, you know, the day-to-day co-travelers in our lives. And we maltreat them. <laughs> we treat them badly because the assumption is they're not going anywhere. The assumption is they're going to keep coming back for more, that there's going to be an exchange of, um, to, to borrow a word from sort of woke culture, uh, or contemporary sensitive workplace culture, microaggressions. Um, I know it's not strictly speaking, it's not the same thing, but you know, come on. Let's 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 have a bit of leeway here, um. But it's 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 the assumption, it's the assumption of kind of permanence or the assumption of longevity, um, the assumption of permanence and longevity in those relationships that gives them a bounce back ability that you think it doesn't really matter, you know, nothing that serious is going to happen that we can't withstand, that we can't survive. And we're also banking on time credit. We're banking on this idea that we've got so much time in the future where stuff can be worked on, where things can be, you know, unpacked and fixed, you know, where, you know, any injury or wound or slight can be redressed in time in the future. And that is definitely something that, you know, I can look at in my, my relationship with my wife. And, you know, you do that. You go, you know, I love this person so much. Um, but you have periods of being like really angry or resentful or completely at odds. And part of your thinking is we'll ride this out. Um, not in the sexual sense, you dirty feckers. Um, you know, you'll ride it out and, you know, all will be, all will be well eventually. But, you know, that that does speak to something I brought up in the previous uh, episode of the podcast. You know, it's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. The kind of the hedging where you think, look, eventually all will be well. You know, time will solve everything. You know, this too shall pass. You know, because in the interim, that's where resentments thrive. And, you know, they kind of they fester. And they really kind of get a grip on your psyche and they they undermine your sort of emotional goodwill and they they curdle they curdle your your view of you know the person you're upset with so you know it it's it's a tricky game, and you know one i <laughs> one i advocate uh i I often hear myself advocating against it's like if there's a problem get it out there. Let's have a look at it. Let's speak, you know, frankly about what's going on. Share your, uh, your sense of injustice sooner rather than later. And, you know, be prepared that you might be uh, accused of something yourself. Um, but yeah, but I'm bringing it back to this idea of, you know, you know, treating people badly and, you know, it's an absolute cliche. It's like, you know, why, you know why is there so much of this kind of thing in families like families can treat each other terribly and there's i think there is this yeah again i use the word assumption there's an assumption of families being something that are um that cannot be broken apart that they're you know forever kind of bound together and you know love and the blood connection will ultimately triumph over everything else uh i think that's a load of crap i really 
yeah, I think, no, <laughs> I reject that. I think clearly, you know, you stop and think for a second about, you know, things that have been done in families and terrible, you know, the terrible sort of traumas and wounds that have been experienced within families um, from one family member to another intergenerational stuff um you know i don't need to elaborate i mean you know your your mind will go to the obvious places very quickly um i feel a lot of this that behavior and a lot of those traumas i mean it's part of your work as an adult to you know process them do your absolute utmost to overcome those legacies and those wounds and really look very honestly and frankly at what functionality is available to you still in those relationships really truthfully what is salvageable is there a functional relationship still there to be had with the people that have wounded you or with the people you have wounded and by by functional relationship, I mean, is this a relationship that can, will continue to strengthen you? Will it continue to, you know, inform your life in positive ways? Will it continue to enrich your sense of self-worth? Will it fill your stores of love and your sense of well-being? And if if you can't say yes to at least some of those things, you know, you've got a question. Well, you know, why... Why am I still here? What is there to be had? Um, who is benefiting from this? And how much of myself am I willing to, you know, to, 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 to give, to continue to give to a dangerous uh, situation where I'm likely to be hurt, wounded, you know, maltreated again and again and again. Yeah, it's, um, I think this is, I, I don't know, I feel that like that's a very recognisable scenario, a very recognisable dynamic. And, you know, I look at myself and I look at my daughter, I look at my wife and I go, am I contributing to trauma? Am I contributing to, you know, painful legacies for which I will not be forgiven in the future? Um, how am I conducting myself better today than I did yesterday? Um, my daughter, I, I think... I think seven is the age of reason. Is that did I, is that right? Can someone verify that for me? My production team, uh, which consists of two guinea pigs and a sleeping cat and this little fly-like creature on the window in front of me. Anyone? Any, any thoughts? We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the legend of the fishy bucket. Many years ago, in the southwest of England, a dedicated band of young actors in training were plying their trade, bright, shiny, and earnest. They had just finished a performance in their own theatre space, for which an audience had paid good money. After the company had taken their bow, one among them stood forth to address the audience. The one chosen to speak was either the prettiest or the most eloquent, or the most charming. And they held aloft a little plastic bucket, the type of thing a child would take to the beach. It was blue and had red fishies on it. A pretty and beautifully enunciated speech was made about the impoverishment of the arts and the nobility of the acting profession. The audience members were moved and found themselves once again reaching for their wallets until the fishy bucket overflowed with the demonstration of their support. This podcast has no fishy bucket. But if you enjoy what you hear, if it makes you laugh, smile or think, there are two ways to contribute to the show's longevity and success. Wherever you are listening to this, you will find a supporter link and a Patreon link, either of which will allow you to make a donation of your choosing on a one-off or a recurring basis. 
I thank you for spending your time with me. And if you are in a position to, I thank you even more for spending your money. Fight the good fight. Support art and artists. And now we return you to the clear out. The age of reason. I mean, certainly when I found myself in, um, you know, in therapy um, many years ago, I think it was around the age of seven that I felt that that was that was a point of departure from happiness, <laughs> from a sense of the world's a great place to be to a sense of, oh, shit, I am not very, you know, I'm suddenly not very happy with uh, my lot. Um, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into the, the details at this point in time, but you know, certainly that's, that's when I felt, um, that, you know, that was my memory of the world suddenly, um, having shadows and dark forces and how that started to impact my sense of being. Um, it was around that age, around seven. And maybe that, that does connect strongly to this idea of, you know, the age of reason starting, starting to kind of make these connections and understanding, um, larger abstract ideas um, about what should and should not be so there you go that's my daughter she's at that age now and I guess that's that's uh, that's in my in my thoughts at the moment so to take that to uh, what I feel is kind of the logical next area of interest I I think it's important to talk about or to to think about, you know, demons, you know, you know, these, these dark elements within us. I mean, like demon is a very dramatic word, but I mean, you know, that's how I often think about it. You know, when I think of my own sort of negative self-talk, um, you know, the kind of thoughts and dialogues that I have when I'm, when I'm depressed, um, and the sort of the negativity and darkness that floods my, my kind of, uh, you know, interior world. I often refer to those elements in my thinking as demons um, and, you know, they're largely connected to, you know, notions of, of self-worth, uh, notions of, um, you know, profound inadequacy. And, you know, with me, they're often wrapped in anger, you know, internally, like self-directed anger. And those demons I feel um, and again I'm going to argue that these are these are recognizable I you know I'm just convinced um, you know through a lifetime of engaging in this kind of area of personal inquiry with lots of you know good friends family members and you know elsewhere my areas you know the stuff I kind of read you know this is what I'm you know continually interested in the you know the internal struggle the struggle for sort of contentment, for for resolution, for for wellness, and you know, onward kind of journeying in life with um with an arsenal of you know an arsenal of weapons that are directed towards kind of resilience and self care and positivity, um and recovery, and I I believe we all have these kind of shadow sides, you know these these voices are these inner forces that we have to wrangle with to, you know, to, to greater or lesser degrees. Um, and it's, it's, it's an, it's a never ending, you know, negotiation. And I consider it, um, I kind of consider it the stuff of life. <laughs> Maybe that's, I don't, I, I don't think that's negative. Um, that struggle to kind of keep yourself well. Uh, I kind of love it. And I love trying to kind of work it out. I love asking those questions of myself and of others. And there is a correlation to uh, to my my life in martial arts and karate, because in karate, uh, like all martial arts, there's a, a pursuit of perfection that you're never going to finish. And so that's the struggle and that kind of journey of constant striving and mindful sort of effortfulness um, and repetition of good habits. I 
I kind of love that stuff. That's, that's really, that's where I live. And I try to implement, you know, those patterns in, in, you know, in all areas of my life. But to return, to return to the idea of the demons um, and the, you know, these kind of forces that dwell within us, in our, in our minds, in our, in our emotional kind of memory, I think it is our responsibility. It's every individual's responsibility to, to get those demons in check, to enter into a dialogue with those demons, with those darker elements within us. However they manifest themselves, whether it's, you know, mild self-doubt, whether it's anxiety, whether it gets even, you know, whether it gets more extreme than that, you know, in my case, it can be, you know, occasional bouts of quite intense depression, um, you know, that, you know, they, that they, they come, they go. I've, I've become much better at recognizing triggers and recognizing the things, the little kind of tipping points um that might send me into that kind of state of mind and i no longer i no longer um compound a depression with an added layer of you know negative self-talk i'm able to kind of go okay this is where i am now i recognize the sequence of events that led to this and i'll ride it out i'll keep breathing I'll make sure I get up in the morning and wash my face and brush my teeth, have a shave, get through the day, try and do a bit of exercise and it will pass. Those periods are rarely productive in terms of, you know, being creative, but they really don't impact me now the way they, they would have in, in my youth. Um, and I see that as self-care. I see that as solely at this stage anyway i see it as solely my responsibility and it's my responsibility to look after that and take care of it so it doesn't impact the people i love and that really is the bottom line that you know if we don't address these things if we don't look at ourselves and go when i'm like that or when those things get hold of me i don't treat the other people in my life well and if I have a low level demon that makes me use an angry voice when I'm speaking to my seven year old daughter, I need to look at that and go, it's not fair that something I'm not in control of impacts my daughter negatively or impacts my wife negatively. That's on me to look at that and really kind of have a look at myself and go, what's this really about? Where? Should you be directing your anger? Where should you be, you know, having this fight? And, you know, I take that very seriously. And, I, you know, I, I, I recommend. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great thing to recommend. Deal with your demons. I mean, it's a challenge. It's not easy stuff, is it? I mean, it really is not easy stuff. I mean, that's why we have therapists and counsellors and psychiatrists and, and medication. Um, but, you know, I just think there's a lot we can do ourselves, whether it's journaling, writing down your thoughts, um, whether it's, you know, having a go-to friend or friends that you can just go, you know, yeah, I felt like this. I acted that way. I spoke to my daughter that way. And again, look, I, I have to hes you know, have to rush in here and just say, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I'm not, you know, roaring my head off at my daughter, but I'm just using, you know, this as a, as a model for this, uh, this discussion, this, um, this monologue. Yeah. I just think that the, the damage that is done to people because, you know, someone can't resolve their, you know, their inner darkness, you know, when someone can't, deal with and address you know their own pain or their own wound um, or wounds the damage that can result from an inability to solve ourselves it's it's profound it's profound and it's it's terribly unfair um, I mean there's a real emotional injustice that happens when other people become the victims of your pain and other people become the victims of your wound. And 
the only way that can be stopped in a you know functionally um is to you know to seek help to find an avenue you know to find an avenue that can lead you to some form of coping of acceptance of of dealing with that in a way that doesn't involve um you know profound collateral damage and that is definitely something that will lead to a a happier you and a happier life and you know i apply that to myself as well when i look at areas of my interpersonal relationships and how i you know behave i take that very seriously and i try to go okay well where's this really coming from what's it about why am i acting this way and what have i done to to put this to bed or what have i done to sort of put this in a safer place and that i think is you know that's i think that's a nice way to think of it you know where is the safest place to to deal with this where is the safest place to you know to let this you know percolate or to let this cool down to let it let this burn itself out uh and do i need to take that into a professional domain do i need to take that into a professional setting um yeah something to think about anyway so now i want to return to the idea of the man cold yes the man cold the man cold as an idea is a funny thing and clearly the idea is you know men are you know there's this kind of stereotypical you know jokey notion that men are terrible patients and that they are terrible at being sick and that they sort of wrap themselves in shrouds of self-pity and you know and vocalized suffering uh when they've got a sniffle yeah and that's funny and i've seen comedy sketches and it's funny it's funny stuff i've laughed ha <laughs> ha so funny and yet there is another little you know there's a little kind of not so great side effect of this you know and let's let's just call it pretty straight <laughs> and, and this is going to go down very well going to go down very well with the female listeners um, you know, if there are any out there. Come on, girls, lend me your ears as well. Fundamentally, the man-cold joke, the man-cold cliche, is an invalidation of male suffering. <laughs> that's true, but that's what it is. That's what it is. It's an invalidation of male suffering. It's a delegitimization of male unwellness. And I'm very, very interested in this area because I'm asking the question, is, is the male emotional landscape delegitimized? Is there space, you know, in society for male suffering? And this question is coming, you know, we're talking, you know, we've had a couple of years now of a few years of the culture wars, a few years of Me Too, I'm not I'm not going to delegitimize any of that stuff. Um you know, but my 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 argument is should we delegitimize or call into question anybody's suffering? Now that's that's the broader that's the broader topic which you know I will go into in in a future episode. But just now kind of quickly in the last kind of few minutes of the podcast that question of male suffering being sort of ridiculed being a sort of a joke you know this this speaks back to um the the book iron john written by um i want to say robert bly yeah that's right robert bly um he wrote the book iron john in 1990 uh robert bly is an american poet and this book sort of launched a men's movement. Uh, he had been given he had been giving talks, kind of men's uh, men's wellness talks, I suppose, or talks about masculinity. And he was using a story from the Brothers Grimm uh, about Iron John 
a boy and his journey to maturation with the help of a wild man. Now I read the book, um, I read the book probably around 20 years ago and I found it very uh, informative, very powerful, very relevant, very resonant. And I loved the kind of idea of uh, his sort of his espousal of positive masculinity. For a long time, I'd been very tuned into the sort of warped aspects of um, masculinity, excessive, you know, violence, um, excessive objectification of women, violence towards women bullying um you know whatever i mean I, I suppose a lot of the stuff that now gets all gets kind of thrown under the the toxic masculinity umbrella uh something i'll, I'll talk about another time toxic masculinity um and the the value or not of that term but one of the things that Bly discussed in iron john was the idea that the male identity or masculinity had been held up for ridicule in popular male uh, popular US culture and he was particularly looking through the lens of sitcoms and if I recall correctly he cited Ted Bundy um, the character from very popular 80s sitcom Married with Children you know this kind of put upon ridiculed father figure who was simply there to provide money to his unappreciative unappreciative children and wife uh, so he'd work hard like a poor schlub and then hand over his money at the end of the week which was just grabbed um, ungraciously by his family members uh, I guess Homer Simpson is another great comic father figure and Bly's point really was, you know, it's not helpful. <laughs> I mean, they're great. They're hilarious characters. Um, but he felt that they had contributed to, they had contributed so powerfully and kind of corrosively to the idea of functional, honorable masculinity that they had done, you know, a lot of damage to the perception of the perception of a man as somebody to be respected and respected and loved and honoured in that sort of family role. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to go in now to those particular um, traditional roles of father or husband or, or man. That's not really the point. But I'm trying to draw a connection between that demotion of man as um respected father figure uh draw draw a connection between that the demotion of that figure to the man cold idea the idea that th this the man in pain um with his cold <laughs> is to be ridiculed and it's i just think the second we're invalidating anybody's suffering no matter how insignificant it may seem, you know, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Like that is a, a degradation of the, of, of, of the human exchange. And it's all well and good. We can slag each other. We can have a laugh. I don't have any issue with that. But certain behaviours take hold and they can become insidious and unhelpful in ways that we may not appreciate at the time and here's here's my last kind of thought this is my argument where if you haven't worked it out this isn't just about this isn't about a man called per se but if you think a man who has a cold gets dismissed and laughed at and ridiculed and you know he might be resilient he might be well able to go asher grant everyone's having a laugh no problem and i know it's just a cold feels lousy and whatever but maybe on another level he's thinking jesus if this is the reaction i get when i have a cold why would i ever risk telling someone that i consider killing myself every now and again why would i ever consider 
telling someone that I feel like a failure most of the time? Why would I risk telling someone in my deepest, most um, hateful fears and insecurities about myself? If when I have a mere cold, I get slagged off and ridiculed and invalidated. And I just think that there's that there's there's a truth there in what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, but there is. There's a connective tissue there that comes back to uh, the expression of of male pain, the expression of male suffering. And people go, you know, why don't men talk about this stuff? Why don't they talk about their feelings? Um, I'm drawing a connection to if you're going to make a man a figure of fun and go, no, you know, a man has to continue to walk that line, that, that stereotypical line of, of strength, that stereotypical uh, traditional line that leads to the role of provider, strong one, um, resolute, inscrutable. You know, it's, it's not going to help, is it? It's not going to help. We have to open up our minds and open up our imaginations and go, these things can coexist um, for all of us. I'm focusing on, you know, men today, but, you know, it's for all of us. Who am I to invalidate anybody's suffering? Who am I to say, you can't be that? You tell me you're in pain and I go, I don't think so. Or you tell me you're in pain and I go, well, my pain is worse and I've been feeling it longer than you. Therefore, your pain has no relevance here. Um, that sounds like a very, that's a very negative note to end the podcast, but um, we'll pick this up again. We'll pick this up another time. Um, I, I think it's, it's a vein worth mining, so to speak. And I will slip away now with my man cold and give myself a little hug, a little pat on the head. And I might have a lie down in an old labba. That's a bed in Irish. Okay, listen, as always, thanks for listening. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to take this in and hope you found something of worth, of usefulness here. Um, I look forward to talking to you soon. Mind yourselves. Take care. All the best. Bye.